Good morning. Can everybody hear me okay? I'm coming through the speakers, am I? Good. Okay. Thank you very much for the introduction. It's a real pleasure to be here uh, this morning. And um, welcome to everybody. Welcome back to everybody. Today I'm going to, to talk about some of the work that I've been involved in over the past few years. I particularly consider myself very fortunate to be working where I work because I have a very varied uh, um, uh, career in terms of um, daily activities. And I hope that the talk that I'm going to give you today will, will give you a taste of some of the different kinds of things that we're involved in in, in our work here in, in Oxford. I thought I'd briefly give you uh, an introduction into how radiocarbon works, um, the basis of the method, very briefly, because I think most people have a pretty good understanding of the basics of the method of radiocarbon dating. Um, radiocarbon was first developed in the 19, late 1940s, and the first radiocarbon dates were published in December 1949. So all radiocarbon dates are given in years BP, BP being 1950. That's our year zero. It doesn't matter, actually, but that, that's, that's just by way of introduction. So how does radiocarbon work? Well, radiocarbon is a radioisotope, and it's formed in the upper atmosphere through the actions of cosmic ray neutrons, small particles, uh, cosmic rays come through the universe, and when they hit the top of the Earth's atmosphere they have um, an impact upon some of the particles that are up there, including neutrons. And sometimes they bash into these neutrons, and the neutrons zoom away. And they can sometimes hit other particles. And when they hit nitrogen-14 uh, in the upper part of the atmosphere, about 10,000 metres uh, above us, they uh, dislodge a proton. And through that activity, through the actions of the neutron and the proton, uh, leaving the nucleus of nitrogen-14, they become C14. And the C14 is then oxidized very soon after in a matter of hours and it becomes carbon-14 uh, labeled CO2. The CO2 then enters uh, the plant and animal lifeways through photosynthesis and then through the plant and animal lifeways that we have on Earth, so animals eating plants and, and other animals eating other animals, until eventually all of the C14 is mixed throughout the biosphere. As we'll see later, uh, there are some notable exceptions to this, but overall this is the basic model. Now, of course, sometimes... Um, eventually, I should say, animals uh, die. Here's a, a poor old woolly rhinoceros getting rather uh, mangled by a bunch of Neanderthals. And when death occurs, of course, there's no replenishment of carbon-14, but because it's radioisotopic, uh, only decay uh, is then um, happening. So decay, a radioactive decay, occurs when uh, the isotope decays back to its parent isotope, which is nitrogen-14. And the genius of the uh, developer of radiocarbon dating, Willard Frank Libby, who was working at the University of Chicago. He was formerly in the Manhattan Project, but uh, at the end of the Second War, he um, began to work more in um, more peaceful uh, applications of radioisotope geochemistry. Um, he and two very bright graduate students in Chicago started to work on radioactive carbon-14, and uh, they succeeded in identifying the half-life of radiocarbon. The half-life is the key to the method. Uh, how long a radioisotope takes to decay back to its parent. And uh, what they've succeeded in discovering was that the radioactive um, carbon decays back in about uh, uh, 5,500 years is the half-life. So every 5,500 years, half of the radioactive carbon decays away. So if we look at this exponential curve, uh, and this is 100%, this is the modern, uh, the modern day, 0 BP, 1950, uh, we can see that after one half-life, half of the radiocarbon has decayed and the date would be about 5,500 years. After a second half-life, we're back to 11,100. And rather like folding a piece of paper in half and half again, 
as, as the half-lives, um, as the radio, radiocarbon decays, we go back further and further in time. So that eventually um, we're back to, well, the, the, the essential limit of any radiocarb- radioactive method is, is about 10 half-lives. So 10, 10, 10 half-lives is the actual limit. Seven half-lives, we're back to about 0.7% of what it was uh, in the modern period, and so on and so forth. So when we're about 50,000 years, we're about 0.1% of the, of, the, of the level of radiocarbon in, in modern times. So that's the basic uh, uh, physics behind uh, chemistry, behind radioact- radioactive decay. And uh, what we do in our lab is we use accelerators to measure radiocarbon. In the years after Libby's uh, development and invention, uh, radiocarbon was measured using various uh, what we call conventional systems. It wasn't until the 1970s that accelerators were used. And accelerators are very useful for radiocarbon dating because they allow us to measure the carbon-14 directly rather than waiting to measure the decay of carbon-14. So using conventional counters, we're measuring the, the decay events uh, so that when a radioactive particle decays, that's what we measure. Whereas with an accelerator, we're actually measuring the individual particles themselves, the carbon-14 uh, um, atoms. And so this gives us a number of advantages. One it means we can date very small amounts of material, about a 1,000 times less than we could before. And second, we can measure very quickly. Uh, we can get a, a date in a, in a matter of 25 to 30 minutes. Um, if we want a precise date, more like an hour, but we can actually get uh, results very quickly. So here's the basic process in the lab. We take a sample from bone. We use a dental drill usually, and we, we, we need about, um, about half a gram of bone powder. So that's about... That's about a teaspoonful or a quarter of a teaspoonful of, uh, of, of, of bone powder. And then we um, convert that into collagen. We extract the collagen from the bone. The collagen is the protein part. In modern bone, we've got about 20% collagen by weight. But in archaeological bone, the amount of collagen has decayed and degraded away often. It doesn't survive particularly well in warm and wet climates, for example. And so sometimes the collagen uh, is present in very low levels. But nevertheless, that's what we want to extract. And you can see some collagen on the end of, uh, of these tweezers uh, of one of our technicians. And then that collagen is then put into a, um, into a small tin capsule, which you can see here, and popped into one of these uh, holes in this carousel. And this carousel is part of an elemental analyzer. And basically what it does is it just combusts and burns the collagen, converting it into gas. And then the carbon dioxide uh, fraction of the gas is then converted into graphite. And you can see the graphite here in the top of this uh, target. This is what we measure the radiocarbon in. And that then, at this this stage, we're talking about about a milligram of of graphite, sometimes a quarter of a milligram, so tiny, tiny amounts. And then this uh, graphite is then put into this machine, which is a, a particle accelerator. And it's actually located just behind the physics department in the Dennis Wilkinson building. So about 50 meters from here as the crow flies. And this is a, um, a particle accelerator that, uh, that we've had in the lab for about uh, 10, 10 or 12 years. And it enables us, as I said before, to measure individual particles of carbon-14 and thereby calculate the age of the sample. So I want to give you some examples of some of the work that we've been doing here over the last few years. I'm going to give you three case studies. The first is about modern humans and Neanderthals. It's an area of interest in the lab generally. We've done a lot of work on this over the last 10 years. And it's, it's, an, it's an area of interest uh, generally. M- m- the public are very interested in Neanderthals, who they are, what happened to them, 
and uh, why they aren't with us anymore. And so I just thought I'd give you a brief introduction to the differences between Neanderthals and modern humans. We're essentially, uh, well, they're essentially cousins of ours, now extinct, of course. Uh, physically, there are some significant differences. And we think that they're, that they're significant, we, we think that Neanderthals are different from us because of their evolutionary legacy living predominantly in, in Ice Age Eurasia and Ice Age Europe, whereas our immediate ancestors come out of Africa around 55 to 70,000 years ago or so. Neanderthals were living in Eurasia, where the temperatures were much lower, and their, um, their skeletons reflect this. So they're much shorter, much squatter, much more robust, and, uh, and they have some very distinct differences in terms of the, uh, the, crania, uh, or, uh, the cranial um, uh, appearance. So they have um, quite distinct and quite large brow ridges, superorbital torus. Their skull shape is quite long and flat. Uh, the size of the, of, of the brain case is, is actually bigger than, uh, slightly bigger than ours. They have a very characteristic flaring of the rib cage. And if you cross-section a bone of a Neanderthal, you'll find that it's much thicker and much more robust bone than ours. There are also differences, too, in the types of material culture that we both had. Uh, Neanderthals uh, utilize an industry, a stone tool industry, that is called Mousterian, um, part of what we call the Middle Paleolithic uh, technology, in which we have a lot of evidence for flakes, flaked stone tools that were utilized over um, about 250,000 years. Some, periodically, they also used, Neanderthals also used um, pigments like this, uh, like this ochre, this red ochre. But there are some differences between um, what Neanderthals were doing and what modern humans were doing. When modern humans arrive in Europe, for example, we find a plethora of new tools and new types of technology, and also a, great, a greater variety of decorative and symbolic items. Ornaments, for example, make their presence uh, felt. And we see them here at the bottom. You can see these are pierced shell ornaments that we find uh, on sites along the Mediterranean Rim. And we find evidence later for um, very complex behavior, such as the presence of the first musical instruments. And this is, a, this is a, um, a flute that was excavated in the German site at Geisenklosterler in the southern part of Germany, and it's made from the, from the wing bone of a, uh, of a vulture, a griffin vulture. And it's, uh, it's been reconstructed by a company called the Hohner Company in Germany, and it actually plays the same types of notes that modern-day instruments do. So we know that modern humans living 40,000 years ago were actually making music in their caves, rather nice to think. Uh, also, um, mobiliary art in the form of these types of sculptures. So, a range of different things uh, by modern humans uh, being used by modern humans and not by Neanderthals. We also know recently that Neanderthals, like this reconstruction of the El Cidron Neanderthal in northern Spain, uh, we know that Neanderthals and modern humans interbred with one another. And this is work that's been done by our colleagues in Leipzig in, 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 in former East Germany. Uh, in 2011, they announced, uh, as, as part of a very long project called the Neanderthal Genome Project, that Neanderthals actually had uh, contributed genes to us. It's estimated that that's between about 1.5 to 2.1% now. Previously, it, it wasn't apparent because the mitochondrial DNA didn't show any evidence for Neanderthal uh, introgression of genes. But the nuclear genome does. And this might help to explain some of um, these types of curious... Um, no, I'm joking, I'm joking. Everyone knows someone that may look like a bit of a Neanderthal. Certainly rugby players would be the top of my list. Um, anyway, that's, uh, that's perhaps, um, perhaps a little bit beside the point. Anyway, 
I do radiocarbon dating. This diagram shows radiocarbon decaying, as I showed you at the beginning, back in time. And in the top part of the diagram, these are radioactive particles that are decaying back to nitrogen-14. At the beginning, there were 10,000. And you can see that when we get down to very low levels of uh, very ancient times, so here we're at 20,000 years, we're only about 800 particles left of the 10,000 we started with. Now, Neanderthals probably went extinct, we thought, around 30,000 years ago. So you can see that the sheer, the sheer challenge here is that we have very few particles left to measure. By the time we get to 40,000 years ago, look, we're only about 85, 85 atoms left of the 10,000. And the result of this is that it is extremely challenging to date old things because of the problems with contamination, contamination of old samples by modern carbon. So when we have, for example, a sample that's 50,000 years old and it's contaminated with 1% of modern carbon, we'll get a date that's around 7,500 to 8,000 years too young. Particularly challenging, uh, this has proven over the last uh, few decades, we've got thousands of radiocarbon dates that have been produced from archaeological sites. There are around 2,000 from uh, Neanderthal sites in Western Europe, and we estimate that the vast majority of them are unreliable because of contamination. And that's uh, as a result of work that we've done um, here in the lab in Oxford over the last few years, which, which uh, has demonstrated this problem. Thankfully, uh, nowadays, we've got uh, better techniques to decontaminate samples for radiocarbon dating. And one of the methods that we use is a technique called ultrafiltration. Here's a picture of a part of, this, part of the triple helix of a collagen molecule. So collagen is, is composed of three long polypeptide chains that are wrapped around each other. And each polypeptide chain consists of about 1,000 amino acids. And... One of the challenges, as I say, has been in the decontamination of these, uh, of, of these uh, molecules. And what we've been using over the last few years is one of these things. It's an ultrafilter. It's about that big. And it's essentially a molecular sieve. And what it does is that it allows us to separate high molecular weight and low molecular weight samples uh, from, from, uh, from the bone that we date. So we, we, we take the bone and we extract the collagen and then we purify it using one of these things. And this allows us to separate these long undergraded chains of, 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 of polypeptide uh, amino acids from smaller um, non-collagenous materials and also small single amino acids that we pass through the filter and throw away. And what we found is that when we date samples without this technique and then with this technique, we get sometimes quite different results. And because of the problems of contamination, we reason that dates obtained using this technique are more likely to be uh, reliable because usually they're older. And as I said before, um, because of the challenges of uh, removing contamination, the older dates are probably closer to reality and closer to being right. So we've seen, using this technique over the last 10 years, better quality of collagen extracted for dating, more improved contamination removal, and as I'm going to show you, better, better dating for the Paleolithic. Here's an example of this technique in action. This is a um, an example from a site called Mesmaskaya, which is in the Russian North Caucasus. And about 10 years ago, some colleagues of ours found two uh, Neanderthal infants, two skeletons of Neanderthals. They were, they were neonates. And uh, they were buried in the site in two layers, two archaeological layers. And one of the radiocarbon dates, which was obtained by some colleagues of ours in a, in a lab in Sweden, uh, produced a date of 29,195 plus or minus 195. And at the time, this was the youngest ever dated Neanderthal. 
And examples like this litter the literature. There are many examples of late surviving Neanderthals like this. Uh, two or three, three years ago, some colleagues uh, and I uh, redated, tried to redate the skeleton. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't get any, we couldn't get permission to take samples because it's very fragmented and broken up. But we did get a date from a Neanderthal, from the other Neanderthal, which was above this in the archaeological site. And when we dated this skeleton using ultrafiltered gelatin, using the ultrafiltration method, we got a date that was around 10,000 years older. This suggests to us that this date is probably not reliable. In addition, we got about 20 other dates, which were also of this age or older, suggesting again that this date is unreliable. It's another example of contamination affecting the reliability of the date. And so we think that that date is unreliable. Another example from a site in Croatia called Vindia, which is a really important site because it's produced the um, famous um, sequence of the Neanderthal genome, uh, we, we redated uh, material from this site. Uh, it was previously dated here using less refined techniques at around 28, 29,000 BP. We got a, a date from this sample, a very small remainder of the material, which suggested the date was 32,000 years, but probably a bit older because of the fact that we only had a very small amount of material. Nonetheless, even though we think this date is probably still an underestimate, it does show that these dates are too young, again, and, uh, and taken together... Um, provides evidence uh, suggesting that Neanderthals didn't survive uh, uh, this, this young in this particular part of the world. So when we look at, um, this is a, um, an illustration from a paper in Nature published in 2006. When we look at the evidence for these latest surviving Neanderthals across Europe, there are, as I said before, a number of examples. So um, for, for instance, we've got uh, the Mesmaskaya site, which is here, which I've just, uh, just mentioned, at around 29,000 before our work. Vindia Cave, which is here, the one I just described a second ago. And there are a number of other sites which contain Neanderthals, which are very, very late surviving, like down here in the south of Spain, uh, Zephyria Cave, for example, where we've got, we had some dates that were about 30,000 years old as well. And um, so... Right across Europe, there are examples of these very supposedly late-surviving Neanderthals. When we first started using um, the ultrafiltration technique and other techniques like it more recently, we, we focused our work in Europe, in, in, particularly in the British Isles. And then subsequently, uh, in about 2006, we got uh, a grant from the Natural Environment Research Council to extend the work that we'd done in the British Isles to the European sequences. And Europe is really key because it's got lots of, lots of archaeological sites, a great record in caves of Neanderthals and modern humans together. And, uh, and some of the sites that we've, that we've found, particularly in the south of France, are very deep, long sequences. And they had lots and lots of dates, which we were, as you could probably imagine uh, by now, a little bit dubious about. And so we, we were, very, um, were very pleased because we got a, a large research grant to undertake work right across here to explore the nature of the transition between the middle Paleolithic, Neanderthals only, and the upper Paleolithic, the arrival of modern humans. And so for the last, uh, for the last few years, we've been working on redating, as you can see from this illustration, about 70 sites, 70 of the key sites right across, right across Europe, and to try to work out uh, when modern humans arrived, when Neanderthals disappeared, and what happened when the two met. So I'd like to give you some examples uh, of the results which we've just recently published. 
So what you can see here are some probability distributions, and these are essentially dates for the final mysterion across Europe, the, the, the date at which the last Neanderthals were present. Here you can see 40,000 years and 45,000 years, and these are calendar dates. Uh, you'll notice that 30,000 is way up here. There are no young dates. Our work has conclusively shown that. So the dates that were present from sites like Vindia and Zafariah, they just don't hold up to scrutiny once you redate them. This is, the, um, this is the distribution of the results. And what we can do with these probability distributions is that we can estimate where the date for the final Neanderthals would be using Bayesian st statistics. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of this, but perhaps we can chat about it later. And when we do this, we find that the final Neanderthal uh, presence is between 41,000 and 39,260 uh, years before present. And after that date, we don't find any Neanderthals or any evidence for Neanderthal sites in, in, in Western Europe. At the same time, we've also been dating modern human sites. And what's interesting here is that uh, this has been, there have been some significant developments here. Previously, we thought that modern humans arrived in, um, in Europe probably at about similar time to this, around 41,000, 42,000. But in 2011, we published a paper which had the results of new dates from a site in the south of Italy where they excavated in the 1960s an archaeological sequence which contains some very interesting um, archaeological, archaeological material, including three human teeth. At the time, in the 1960s, the archaeologists had identified these teeth as Neanderthal teeth. But in 2011, some colleagues of ours using a new technique called geometric morphometrics, it's a, it's a technique that you can use to map the surface and the variable um, uh, patterns that are found on the teeth and the cusps. They identified them as actually not Neanderthal, but modern human teeth. And at the Cavallo site, this is the site we're working on, we undertook new dating, um, which showed that the site probably dated from about 44 to 46,000 years ago. And therefore, if it was modern humans, they were present much earlier than we'd hitherto thought. So, this then is the summary of the work that we've done on this particular project. And I'm going to give you a series of time slices which show you how these various, various populations um, are present across the face of Europe at this time, between 46,000 and 40,000. And you're going to see some dots here. And the blue dots are Mysterian sites. Those are ones that are definitively identified with Neanderthals. And then the red is um, an archaeological industry called the Chateau Peronian, which is present in, mainly in um, France and northern Spain, which is associated archaeologically at the moment with Neanderthals. And then finally, the greens, the green dots, which you'll see, which are the Aluzian industry, which I've just mentioned, from Italy, which we now associate with modern humans. And so you'll see a series of time slices showing the presence and absence of these uh, various industries through time. So here's 46,000, and then 45,000, 44,000. You can see some very, you can see a little green dot appearing down at the south of Italy. This is the earliest evidence we've got from modern humans, another one here. 44,000. 42,000. The blue dots are very, very few now. 41,000. And then 40,000, we've got uh, these um, sites here in France. And the last Mysterian, the last Neanderthal that we've dated directly is from a site in Belgium called Spee. It's a cave that was excavated a long time ago. And 
At about the same time, although we haven't shown you in this particular diagram, we have a new wave of modern humans who are present at around 41,000. Uh, that's the origination industry. I'll just show you that video quite quickly again, 46. And you can see. And uh, if you're interested, this paper's just been published and it's about three weeks ago, um, looking at the spatial spatio-temporal patterning of the disappearance of Neanderthals. And this was published in Nature last, um, last month in August. The picture has become a little bit more complicated. Um, you've probably heard about this in, in news over the last uh, couple of years, but in 2011, scientists, again, uh, colleagues of ours in Leipzig, working at this site, which is a site in the Altai region. There's a cave just below this mountain crag this is a, a camp uh, uh, where the archaeologists work, working here live. Uh, it's in the Altai region of Siberia, so about halfway across Eurasia, just north of Mongolia in the Altai. And uh, in 2011, genetics, geneticists working in Leipzig uh, analyzed a small piece of bone. This is a cutaway view of the site. They analyzed a small piece of bone, uh, probably from a, a, a girl of about nine years old, uh, a, a small phalanx, and they analyzed a tiny piece of it, around 30 milligrams in size. And because the DNA was so incredibly well-preserved, they succeeded in extracting mitochondrial DNA from it, which showed that the bones weren't from a modern human, and they also weren't from a Neanderthal. They were from something else, something that nobody had actually seen before. And uh, this particular hominin that, um, that provided this uh, specimen... Uh, is about as distant from Neanderthals as we are from Neanderthals. And so it was a previously unknown hominin. And this particular hominin has been given the name Denisovans. It hasn't been classified uh, under the Linnaean classification because uh, there is no uh, physical material apart from this and this particular tooth. And uh, so the Denisovans, as they've become known, were um, contributors, again, and interbred with modern humans at some point in the last 50 to 70,000 years. Modern-day humans have some DNA from Denisovans, just as we have DNA from Neanderthals. And what's interesting is that, the, is that the people who have the most Denisovan DNA are people in the east of Asia, particularly uh, from Australia and Melanesia. They have between 4 and 7% of their DNA from Denisovans. And an intriguing paper a few months ago, again in Nature, suggested that uh, modern-day Tibetans have a gene or a series of genes from Denisovans which give them the um, ability to survive at altitude. And these genes come directly from a Denisovan uh, genetic introgression to us. So um, this picture then um, of Neanderthals and modern humans has become uh, much more interesting and complicated and our um, research has received um, a bit of a boost because last year we got funding from the European Research Council, which is now enabling us to extend our work over more of Eurasia, most of Eurasia, in fact, including these key sites in the Altai where we find Denisovan remains. And so we're now working on increasing our coverage of the dating of this important period and particularly working out when modern humans came out of Africa and how they dispersed uh, across this vast area of, of Eurasia. Um, I realised the other day that in the blurb to this, uh, the abstract to this talk, I'd mentioned Richard III, so I thought I'd better say something about Richard III now. I wasn't intending to, but then I thought, I, you know, obviously you check back, don't you, and you see. 
The body in the car park, I mean, everyone knows about this. It's, I'm, I'm not going to talk about it for very long. Um, but you'll know that in Leicester, um, archaeologists recently in 2011, uh, acting on a lot of historical evidence and a lot of hunches, uh, excavated beneath a car park, and they, they excavated the remains of, of a man, and here he is, rather hunched up and um, buried in a, in, a, in a very rapid way, and um, a very bowed skeleton and some serious, serious uh, uh, problems with various parts of his body. Uh, he'd been hacked up rather badly. And, uh, and you'll know that um, but based on the press release and the work that was done at the time, including lots of DNA evidence, that there are significant and uh, serious grounds to consider that this is, these are the remains of Richard III, who, of course, died in 1485 at the Battle of Bosworth Field. Uh, we were part of the team that was doing work on this, um, on this specimen, and we, uh, we were asked to radiocarbon date the remains of Richard, or the supposed remains of Richard III, early on in the piece. Getting dates, of course, are really critical because with, you know, a date that's significantly different from the date of Richard is really going to put a bit of a spanner in the works of the whole project and, and, and mean that they won't waste a lot of time and effort and money on further analyses. Uh, when we first got the radiocarbon date, uh, here are the results. Uh, the radiocarbon age was 437 plus or minus 13, and when we calibrate the date... Uh, calibration is required because radiocarbon varies in terms of its production rate through time... So we calibrate the radiocarbon date through this thing called a calibration curve, which is a record of radiocarbon fluctuations based upon high-resolution dated tree rings of known age. We got this calendar date, which sits down here, and as you can see, it's between 1440 and 1450. Oh dear, what a shame. However, we know that based on stable isotopes, the carbon and nitrogen stable isotopes, there is a variation in these, these isotope values, uh, depending on the diet that you, uh, that you eat. So if, for example, you eat um, fish, a lot of fish from the sea, we know that fish and ocean um, organisms have a lower amount of C14 than C14 on the land. And so uh, if you're a habitual eater of uh, fish, like a, an Inuit, for example, your radiocarbon data is going to be artificially too old. And it's important that we, that we work out this using stable isotopes the stable isotopes here of nitrogen and carbon, and uh, we consider whether or not the person has been eating a largely terrestrial diet or a largely marine diet, or in the case of Richard III, somewhere in between, because then we can make a correction for that. And there's a lot of work that's been done on this over the last 20 or 30 years that gives us confidence that we can actually make these kinds of corrections. And so we, when we did this, and we um, modelled the results, we got this date which is between 1475 and 1530. Bang on the money, in other words. Thank goodness for that. And, uh, and of course, this is just a small part of the overall research, uh, research that was done on the remains of Richard III. Actually, it's quite funny because um, you know, people send us samples all the time to the lab, and usually they send us a little bit too much. In the case of Richard III, they sent us two quite large ribs. And so we took a sample, of course, you know, half a teaspoon of bone, we did our dates, and, um, and then we, we did, got the results, and we sent the results away, and that was fine. And then the press release was done. Okay, brilliant. And then um, a few uh, weeks ago, <laughs> a few weeks ago, someone, we had a regular lab meeting. Someone said, um, hey, aren't they they're going to be reburying Richard III soon, aren't they, in Leicester Cathedral? Yeah, they are. That's right. Yeah, they are. Brilliant. Okay. And then someone said, did we send back the ribs that we, that we had in the lab? <laughs> um, 
and, and uh, I, no, I don't think we did. Oh, my God, we better get them back. Otherwise, it could be quite embarrassing. You know, Richard's been buried. And by the way, did you put the ribs in? No. <sighs> so, we, so we quickly couriered them back. Now all the bits are back together. So thank goodness for that. And you might also have seen some recent work that was done on Richard III, um, looking at his diet in, uh, in more detail, using other isotopes like strontium and oxygen and sulfur and things like that. And uh, there was a very interesting paper that came out in um, the Journal of Archaeological Science a few weeks ago, which coincided with the press release, that showed that Richard was not only eating a little bit of fish, but also a range of other things, including quite a lot of wine. In fact, his wine consumption went up in the last few years of his life, apparently. So, anyway, a bit of stress. Now, the last um, case study I want to talk about briefly is, is titled Nuclear Bombs, Forensics and Fakes. Now, in the late 1940s, of course, everybody knows that nuclear technology arrived and nuclear bombs uh, and nuclear testing was undertaken. And that this actually has a very significant effect on radioactive carbon in the atmosphere. This shows the amount of radiocarbon that was produced in the years... In the, in the years from about 1955 to 1963. Because of all these nuclear bomb tests, um, carbon-14 is artificially created because of this massive neutron flux that takes place uh, when you blow up a nuclear device. So carbon-14 is artificially created by this process. And the amount of radiocarbon peaked at around twice the normal level in 1963 in the Northern Hemisphere. And then a nuclear test ban treaty was signed, which stopped atmospheric testing. And so what happened then was that the amount of radiocarbon in the atmosphere slowly declined as this, what we call bomb carbon, entered the plant and animal life ways just as in the normal um, chain of events. So every one of us today has elevated carbon-14 based on nuclear bombs. And all living things do as well. It's not enough to be worried about. Don't worry, you're not gonna, it's not going to be um, dangerous to you. It's, it's still very low level and it's certainly not, uh, not dangerous. But, um, but for a radiocarbon scientist, we call it the silver lining of the nuclear bomb testing era because it enables us to do things like, well, uh, look at forensic cases and look at fakes. And so what we do is when we radiocarbon date something from the 20th century and we find, or, or previously, and we find high levels of radioactive carbon, we know that the sample must have grown in the, t in the late 20th century. And so um, often we date things for the police. Um, they come to us and they, they bring a bit of a missing person or a body that's been found. Usually bodies and bits of, bits of human bone are found by people walking dogs, actually. Very, very commonly, um, the police bring us a sample and, they, and, and it's, it's from a dog walker. And so they send it to us for dating to determine whether or not it's from someone recent. So we can actually date people to a great deal of precision, uh, when we get uh, teeth or hair, not so much for bone because collagen turnover slows with age and so it's very hard to get precise dates. But with teeth, we can. And here's how it works. Basically, we take a tooth and we radiocarbon date it and then we're able to, we're able to fix which side of the bomb curve the date sits uh, by dating two different teeth that erupt at different times. And so we, we, we run a line across here from the measurement across to the curve and then we... Hit, when, when, when we hit the curve here, then we subtract uh, the date from the date, uh, the age at which the teeth would have erupted previously. So usually five or six years before the, the, the teeth would start to erupt in a person. And thereby, we can fix the date uh, of the birth of the person. So we can tell the police when that person was born. And this is a, um, a, a plot showing the estimated date of birth or the known date of birth against the actual date of birth. 
So here's the date that we've determined, and here's the actual date at which they were born. And you can see it's a very good line of agreement. And so this is a technique that's been, that have, has been used to look, at, um, to look at forensics and deaths. Whiskey is something that we can date too. A few years ago, um, someone from the Scottish Whiskey Research Institute came to visit us in the lab across the road and said, we've got a bit of a problem with whiskey. What's the problem? People are faking whiskey and they're selling it uh, when it's actually not real whiskey uh, from the date at which it says on the bottle. So basically what has happened is that a lot of people have been buying whiskey and investing in it and the price of whiskey has shot up. This whiskey bottle went for £46,000. Several have gone for 30,000, 40,000 pounds. This is the most expensive bottle of whiskey that's ever been, to my knowledge, sold. And according to this chat from the Scottish Whiskey Research Institute, Italian gangsters had been buying up, sort of getting old bottles and then putting modern whiskey in them, corking them up, and then, and then pretending that they were really old and selling them. And so he came to us to see whether we could do anything about this. And so we did some, some, some initial testing and we found that we could actually date the carbon in the whiskey and get a date for, the, for when this whiskey was distilled and made. And, uh, and we did a lot of testing on, on this, and we found that we could, we could get the right answer. So we've been dating a lot of whiskies, and it's, it's surprising. A lot of them are quite recent. They're actually not what they say on the tin. So if you have any old whiskey that you want to just confirm uh, as being real or not, or faked, please get in touch, and we'll, we'll do some measurements. When he, said to, when he said to us, this man from the Whiskey Research Institute, when he said to us, how much material do you need to, to, to do a date? <laughs> I said, three or four hundred mils. And he kind of went, and I said, no, 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 we don't. Actually, we need about three, three hundred microliters, a tiny, tiny amount, 30 microliters, a tiny squirt, a very small amount. A few years ago, someone sent us whiskey from Shackleton's expedition to Antarctica. And uh, they, they'd found one of his caches, and they found this whiskey, um, barrels of whiskey, no, not barrels of whiskey, bottles of whiskey in a, in a box. And uh, they did a lot of scientific analysis of this whiskey, and they sent us some of that whiskey to, 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 to date, just to confirm that it was, it was legit. And of course it was. I mean, Shackleton wasn't, uh, wasn't a faker in any way, shape, or form. So that was quite fun. That was quite fun as well. Okay. Um, I'd like to thank uh, all of the staff and colleagues at the Oxford Radiocarbon Unit. That... This is a team effort. There are about 15 of us that work in the lab and do all of, all of this work. And I'd also like to acknowledge all of the collaborators uh, who work with us on, on these papers. Particularly important to acknowledge our funding agencies and our institutions. And thank you as well for your um, presence here today. <laughs>